Welcome to Nonprofit Investment Stewards with Bob DeMeo and Devin Francis from Fiducian Advisors. Bob and Devin are passionate about helping nonprofit organizations prosper. Whether you oversee endowment, foundation, or retirement plan investments, this podcast exists to help stewards improve performance, reduce costs, and discover strategies that enable your charitable organization to prosper and advance its mission. Now, onto the show. Hello, and welcome back to the Nonprofit Investment Stewards Podcast. I'm Bob DeMeo. Great as always to be joined by co host Devin Francis. On today's episode, we're going to delve into the world of museums, zoos, gardens, and other attendance-dependent nonprofit organizations. It's a fascinating environment with some segments really thriving and, candidly, others facing extraordinary challenges. Super interesting topic, but before we jump to our guest, Devin, good to be with you today. Good to be with you, Bob. I am so pleased today to be joined by Laura Lott. Laura is president and CEO of the American Alliance of Museums, AAM. She's a strategic leader with a track record of transformative change in nonprofit organizations. She served as the Alliance's chief operating officer for five years before becoming the chief executive officer in 2015. Laura led the redesign and rebrand of AAM, resulting in a 70% growth in membership and the organization's first five profitable years in a decade. Laura is also a passionate advocate for strong and engaged boards, speaking to numerous museum boards every year. Before joining AAM, Laura served as Chief Financial Officer and Chief Operating Officer of the Jason Project, which is an international nonprofit education program at the National Geographic Society, with a mission to inspire and motivate students to learn science through great explorers. Laura is a CPA and a Price Waterhouse alum. I could go on and on, but let me simply say we are so thrilled to have Laura Lott on the show, and we really look forward to gleaning her insights. Welcome, Laura. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Devin. So pleased to be here. Laura, it's just great to have you on the show, and particularly with just the dynamic in place with the membership and the members that you serve. So before we jump into too much, you have an extensive and fascinating background. Maybe you can share a bit about the evolution of your career, why you're passionate about working with museums and such. Thanks, Bob. And thanks for that very lovely uh, bio up front. I uh, hope I can live up to it. You know, one thing that's not in my bio, but I'm very proud of is I was one of, I was the first person in my family to go to college. And so there's a lot of pressure. I wasn't going to blow it. <laughs> um, very pragmatic and very goal oriented. And so I, I got my accounting degree. Uh, which my accounting advisor told me then would never hurt me, no matter what I decided to do with my life. And he was absolutely right. I joined PricewaterhouseCoopers, which I think was one of the big five then, and, and got my CPA. I went to school here in DC. And during college, I had the opportunity to do several internships and discovered that there was this whole world of philanthropy and nonprofits out there where somebody could go to work and make money and also make the world a better place. And so I quickly found my way into corporate philanthropy and discovered there that I had a real passion for education, particularly K through 12 education and improving schools and opportunities for, for, for everyone. That led to working at an amazing program at National Geographic that was all about using real scientists and real explorers and the real science they were doing to inspire kids to want to learn science in middle school in particular at a time when science starts to get kind of tough for, for many kids. Still today with all the roles that museums play, 
in their communities. I find my deepest passion for them is in their education work, that lifelong education, of course, but also their early education and K through 12 work with students and their, their authenticity, the power of those real objects, the real places, the real experts that museums come to bear on, on education in this highly technological world where everything can be manufactured or digitally altered or virtual. I find it's so powerful and it's comforting in some way to be in the presence of the real thing. So combination of, of, of passion for education and, and, and power of authenticity and real places, real objects has me really thrilled to be working in the museum field. That's great, Laura. So can you talk a bit about the role that AAM plays and the types of organizations it serves? Yeah. So AAM, our vision is a a just and sustainable world that's informed and enriched by thriving museums uh, who are contributing to the resiliency and the equity of their communities. We don't often think about museums in economic terms. Of course, they are priceless in many ways. But museums in the U.S. alone are a $50 billion a year industry. Pre-pandemic, museums employed three quarters of a million people. And part of AAM's role is to champion museums, to help people understand and appreciate the essential role of museums in communities and in our nation, both in economic terms, but also in in the invaluable roles that they play in education, in community service, uh, and in preserving our culture, the things that society deems uh, important to save for future generations. We often think of the big urban centuries-old museums that are so important to our society But there are something like 30,000 museums in the country, most of them very small, serving rural communities, operating as community centers, really, in a lot of places. And as Bob, as you said up front, when we say museums, we mean A to Z, art museums to zoos, and everything in between. So children's museums and science centers and botanic gardens and a range of of institutions that rely on uh, people coming coming through their doors or, or engaging with them in some way. And from the biggest, like the Smithsonian here in Washington, D.C., to the all-volunteer train museum that's in my neighborhood. So range of of sizes of of museums that AAM works with. AAM is also the accrediting body for museums. So we hold a robust set of professional standards and ethics for museums and museum professionals. We provide resources and learning and engagement opportunities for museum professionals, including the largest annual gathering of museum professionals in the world now, which I'm so excited will reconvene in person finally this spring after two years of, of virtual conferences. And so we're a, a robust community that serves a you know, range of museums, but we're the one place where everyone comes together. So Laura, obviously the pandemic has had to have had a, an enormous impact on, you talk about the A to Z of museums. So from the art museums to the zoos, all of these attendance-based nonprofit organizations. Can you talk a bit about the impact of the pandemic on this, this space and where do we stand about two years into this? Yeah, it it has been a really tough two years. At the beginning of the pandemic, the first survey we conducted of our community found that about one third of museums in the country were at risk of closing permanently if the pandemic went on and if they didn't get some sort of financial relief. 
So this was obviously a staggering number and would so negatively impact so many communities across the country if these places closed forever. And we know that museums do when they close, they tend to close forever. So unlike a a restaurant, which I also love, (laughs) that might close uh, during a difficult time, but then be replaced with a new restaurant at some point in the future, once a museum closes, it pretty much closes for good and its collections are often dispersed and often lost forever for future generations. So we knew we had to be pretty aggressive in our advocacy efforts so that museums wouldn't get left out of federal relief programs, not by not by you know anyone not wanting museums to survive, but just by um, neglect, by absent, you know, not thinking about them. Following the Great Recession in the late 2000s, that's what originally happened. Museums were ineligible for stimulus funds. Um, we were eventually successful in changing that back in 2008, but the for the bulk of the for the bulk of the field, we were able to change that. But for for some museums, they were still left out, and we didn't certainly didn't want a repeat of that, given the crisis that the pandemic was was imposing on museums and museum people. So my team and our our partners and and museum advocates across the country put in many, many hours and sent literally tens of thousands of letters to Congress. And we were ultimately successful in ensuring that museums were eligible for both PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, and a program called Shuttered Venues Operating Grants, which provided uh, great relief funding for those museums that were really impacted by being shuttered uh, for months at a time in some places uh, of the country, you know, almost the entire 2020 and into 2021 that museums were having to be closed and some that were just voluntarily closing because they didn't know that it was, if it was safe to have people uh, in and around their their exhibits. So thanks to the federal funding, the percentage of museums at risk of permanent closure has been cut in half, about 17% now, according to our most recent data which of course is still way too many, but we continue to work on that. Unfortunately, we have seen dozens of museums close indefinitely or or permanently. The Annenberg Space for Photography in LA, the Portland Children's Museum in Oregon, the Indianapolis Contemporary Art Museum, just to name a few that really hit home for me in particular, uh, and hundreds more that are still closed right now and, and are, I think, at risk of never reopening many historical societies and and sites across the country. Laura, that's uh, in part really good that there's been an improvement, but but a sad loss in many other instances. And and perhaps that takes us to the topic of financial sustainability. And we'd love to have you comment on the trends in financial sustainability for museums. Yeah, well, of course, this is a passion of mine as well, given my background as a as a finance person, as a CPA. And knowing that even before the pandemic, many museums were pretty severely undercapitalized, and I'm afraid many more are now. It's a pretty precarious business model and something we've been looking at at AM for several years, how to build more stability, more sustainability in museums, um, business models, and financial backing. Most people out there think government funding is what most museums rely on. But the truth is that fewer than 25% of museums get any government funding um, and it's zero for zero for a lot of them. So others think that museums rely on wealthy donors, but that's really only true for a few. And that money is typically highly restricted. So most museums rely on relatively small amounts of money from memberships, from ticket sales, from donations, uh, all, you know, all from community members, people who live in the community and, and support the museum by by going or making contributions. And 
as communities, just like we need to support the small businesses, the family owned restaurants and other things that we don't want our communities to lose, we need to support our local museums as well, or, or we'll lose them. Or more pointedly, our children and our grandchildren will lose them. And Laura, what do you see leadership doing differently at your member organizations? I'm sure the segment matters a lot and maybe even geography matters. We're museums able to have folks attend or not based on local rules and mandates. But but what do you see leadership doing differently at your member organizations that have a brighter financial future today? Yeah, museums are really rethinking everything uh, given the disruptions of the past couple of years, which I which I think is good and healthy. Many museums are monetizing experiences in different ways. They're not that some of this wasn't existing before, but it seems that more museums are looking at renting their beautiful spaces for weddings and celebratory occasions or thinking about what they have beyond their collections, uh, but what they have in space, what they have in expertise and what they can do with it. They're thinking about that in different ways. You know, many schools became many museums became schools during the pandemic and actually tapped into education funding. Uh, as part of providing classroom space for schools that needed more space or parents who were working and needed a place for their children to go during the day. Uh, So they're thinking about serving communities in different ways and ways that that might bring some financial sustainability to their bottom lines. So adaptation and evolution seems to be the key then. No, I think that's right. It's all about, you know, adapting to the, you know, I think what everyone realizes now is a ongoing changing set of circumstances that, you know, stagnation is just, it's going to be death for many institutions, museums included. So Laura, let's shift and talk a bit about investing. So what is the broad overview of the investment landscape for museums? My assumption is that you've got some large, very well-endowed museums and others with no investment portfolio at all. Is that correct? Yeah, you're right. Absolutely, Devin. So our our latest data was museums on average have about 14 months of reserves. That's a, you know, it's quite an average of quite a quite a variation of of institutions as you pointed out. 25% of museums have four, have fewer than 4 months of reserves, so they're really just operating, you know, on operation funds without without much if any investments at all. In a 2017 survey that we did that was about 860 museums, 54% had less than a million dollars in investments and only something like 9% had, you know, $25 million or more in investments. Very few have have much more than that. So there is a wide range of institutions, but it can be from zero to pretty pretty large investment and uh, endowments. So for those museums who do have investment portfolios, do you have any insights to share on best practices regarding the investment approach or perhaps board or committee structure, anything along those lines? Sure. Yeah. Well, obviously, those that have investments have, you know, those portfolios have been doing well for those museums. And so increasingly, I think museums realize that, uh, you know, the, there's that's that's an opportunity and a place to grow their expertise and their sophistication. I think that same 2017 survey I mentioned showed a wide range of investment approaches at that time and, you know, various levels of sophistication when it came to managing those investments. At AAM, we highly recommend museums have an investment policy for starters. I think only about half of museums do or did, again, a couple of years ago, an investment policy that addresses their strategies, their targets, that allows them to monitor how their investments are performing against other benchmarks and making sure 
you know, that they don't view those investments as both, you know, short-term cash, but also don't just park them someplace and ignore them either, but really make sure that they're, they're performing. And a spend policy, of course, for when and how to use the returns that they get strategically. We also recommend, if not a separate investment committee, that the finance committee of the board should have some oversight of those policies and, and should be regularly reviewing them in the context of the museum's current situation and, and, and in, in the, the environment's current situation. And that those committees, whatever committee it is of the board that oversees that, has some um, expertise in this area, either you know on the board or in the form of trusted advisors who can help explain the options and the results and, and the opportunities that are out there for museums. I think that's really great advice. Thank you for sharing that. So the last thing that I'll ask about the investment landscape, I saw an article on your website about ethical investing. And an excerpt from that article indicates that the top 45 museums in the U.S. hold endowments of more than $40 billion in aggregate. However, most are invested in the very same types of companies like tobacco, weapons manufacturing, fossil fuels that are frequently protested in connection with their controversial donors. So, But, but the article suggested that it doesn't have to be that way. What thoughts can you share on that topic? I, I don't know about that specific reports methodology or conclusions. And when people talk about endowments, they generally focus on the biggest endowments, the largest generally art museums, which aren't necessarily representative of the whole field. But of course, museums, you know, are invested in index funds and mutual funds that include a range of industries. And I think there's increased attention to how the that that money and those investments and their fund managers even are in alignment with their values um, and with their missions and museums thinking about, you know, the influence that particularly larger investments have in terms of social good. And so we've seen art organizations, for example, prioritize investment in the creative economy, very, you know, values aligned to the rest of their work with a increased recognition and I think commitment to diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion across the museum field. Many museums are deliberately investing with people of color and women fund managers who've been shown to invest in companies led by people of color and women founders. Museums are asking their advisors about ESG metrics, you know, and paying more attention to the details of how their investments are contributing to or reinforcing inequities in our financial system and society, if and how they're contributing to climate, the climate crisis inadvertently, or you know what other things their investments are involved in that they might oppose if it was more visible in their operations. That's helpful, Laura. And when I think of our clients, we're managing money for art museums and gardens and zoos and a, a wide variety of your type of members and actual members of your organization. I'm just curious, as you think about lessons that have been learned from the pandemic, what you might share that might be helpful as leadership thinks about a, a post-COVID future? There's there's really so much. And I, you know, I think as as a finance person, I've always thought, though the the pandemic has been really painful and um, traumatic for many people, I've always thought that, you know, you have to take advantage of a crisis, never put a good, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? So out of this crisis, we have witnessed some really amazing examples of museums engaging with their communities, I think, in expanded ways. From the very start of the pandemic, museums 
donated, you know, gloves and face masks that they had in their in their restoration uh, preservation areas to to hospitals and, and medical communities that needed them. They opened their doors to provide childcare for first responders. Museums like the New York Botanical Garden and many others across the country grew food for their local food pantries and their in their outdoor spaces. Zoos offered virtual animal experiences. Fiona the hippo from the Cincinnati Zoo would make an appearance on your boring Zoom call to add some surprise and, and delight to, um, to, to participants. So many museums, I think, discovered that they had a lot to offer and that their expansion into this you know, world of virtual engagement, whether it was through some of those things I mentioned or just virtual exhibit tours or bite-sized lectures on an artifact or a piece of art or children's programming that, you know, as a parent, I can say was tremendously valuable for, 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 for all of us during the, during the quarantine times. They discovered that all of those things reached a broader audience, an audience that, you know, maybe was outside of their local geographic area. Kids were attending virtual camps at science museums across the country because they could. And people were engaging with museums that had never stepped foot in those museums before. And that is a huge uh, opportunity for museums going forward and one that, you know, our studies have shown the majority want to continue so that they can reach beyond their four walls, out into their communities, and use social media and other web platforms to reach audience they, you know, around the world that they wouldn't ever have reached before or been able to host in person in in their museums. They're also partnering with community organizations, I think, in new ways. The COSI is a science museum in Ohio, did something really incredible that I know they intend to continue, which is the local food bank was creating lunch kits for local students who, you know, who, who didn't have school lunches to rely on anymore. And the museum said, well, we, we want to help and create lunch and learn kits. You know, you, you nourish the children's bodies. We want to nourish their minds. And they delivered thousands and thousands of these lunch and learn kits to local communities and eventually expanded the program across the state. And that's, you know, it's a new way for a museum to really think about not having to do it all itself, but partner with another local institution that's meeting a really critical community need and use what the museum has to enrich it even further. How, how rewarding. And, and I'm smiling as you're describing this here, Laura, because there is a real fun component to your role and your job and, and really to museums. And I'll share a story. I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but we have a zoo client in Chicago that basically, uh, we, <laughs> it's been a while, but we do big in-person conferences, both out east and in Chicago and other parts. And uh, we usually have one of our nonprofit clients come and speak at lunch and kind of break up some of the financial data and such. And we had the president of the zoo come and talk. And it's just wonderful. You can imagine clicking through slides and so on. But then after, after lunch, right outside the doors in the, uh, in the um, foyer, they had brought a number of different animals. And I can't tell you how much joy that just brought to the attendees and so on. So it, you really do have a fun component. And frankly, like you, we're looking forward to more in-person and, and resuming these conferences this spring and in the fall. But thank you for sharing that, reminding me of that. So Laura, many of our listeners are executives, including CFOs, as well as finance or investment committee members. Do you have any practical tips that you might want to offer up in this setting? Yeah, thanks for asking that, Devin. Uh, You know, museums are mission-oriented businesses, but businesses nonetheless 
I think when I speak to boards and 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 finance committees, uh, a lot of finance and investment folks kind of defer to the museum, thinking that they're so different or nonprofits are so different from, you know, some of their their work in the for profit sector, but museums really are businesses and they they benefit from the experience and advice of folks with finance backgrounds. It's something that many museum directors often don't have because they might have expertise in, you know, a particular area of art or history or, or science, but not necessarily the business background that is also required to, to run these complex organizations. So my advice would be, you know, to the CFOs and the finance and investment committee members out there, potential finance and investment committee members is even if you don't have a passion for museums per se, I I recommend finding a museum that works in an issue area for what you do have a passion, you know, a science museum that um, is working on climate change or museum that has a robust education program or a botanical garden that's working with, you know, veterans with PTSD, you know, these museums are doing amazing things, but find one that does address your passion and, and volunteer to lend your financial expertise on their board. They, they, and we, the collective field, we, we need you. Laura, you've shared a lot. Anything regarding resources or some of the analytical work or what have you that AAM is doing that we should have asked you, but didn't? Oh, well, there, there is a lot to cover, but, you know, at AAM, we're trying to lead the field forward. So after a variety of resources around, you know, how to, how to shut down responsibly, how to, because of course, museums, particularly those that you were just talking about, Bob, with live animals can't just turn off the lights and close the doors. They, they had to put in other procedures in place as they were having to close and sometimes open and close <laughs> a few times. So AM spent a lot of time and resources uh, helping museums with all of that and then to reopen safely again for their staffs and for their visitors. But we've also recently spent a lot of time thinking about the, the years ahead and knowing that the decisions that we make now will impact our field and therefore impact our communities for you know, decades to come and, and trying to figure out what are the lessons learned that can help us to rebuild a better field. Uh, so we recently launched our strategic framework for the next couple of years, which will guide us into hopefully leading the museum field into a brighter and more resilient future. It continues, it kind of doubles down on some of that social impact of museums I was talking about, museums working in, 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 in bigger, broader ways with their communities, building a stronger community of museum professionals who, like all of us, have been largely working from home and kind of isolated over the last couple of years. Um, it's focuses on continuing to forge a more inclusive and equitable future for museums as employers and as contributors to their communities. And of course, it commits us to looking at our own AM's own structures and the changes that we need to make to be more nimble and financially sustainable and, and as a supportive backbone for the, for the field. That's great. So Laura, we, we always like to learn a little bit about our guests as people outside of their professional uh, careers. So before we let you go outside of your work and your volunteer efforts, what do you truly enjoy doing? Yeah, I thought you were going to ask me what my favorite museum is, Devin, which is what everybody always asks. <laughs> and I always say, you know, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like your favorite child. You probably have one, but you can't admit to it. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, you know, I'm lucky that I actually really enjoy museums. I, I have found a, a career that allows me to really have I've never really believed in work life balance. For me, it's always been work life integration. And 
you know, I found a field uh, where I can really do that. I'm, you know, proud mom to a, a nine-year-old little, you know, girl who loves her museums. And so we get to do a lot of, you know, things that are quasi work, quasi fun together in and around museums, both here locally and, and when um, you know, I travel around, out around the world to visit different museums in different parts of the world. But I'm also a foodie and a cook. I love experimenting in the kitchen and hosting dinners and can't, can't, wait, can't wait to get back to doing more of the latter. I've been doing lots of cooking, not so much hosting. And my total escape is flying, actually. I'm an instrument-rated private pilot, and there is nothing better for me than buzzing around in my little single-engine uh, plane. So that's been a little bit on hiatus, too, but I, I can't wait to get back to it. Wow, that's fascinating. You really are a woman of many talents. <laughs> So, Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. You've shared so many great insights, and we are so appreciative of the time and the expertise that you shared with us. If listeners want to learn more or access resources, where might they go to do that? Sure. Our website is a great resource. It's aam-us.org. And uh, you can find, I'm sure, through Googling. There's a range of resources there for both people who work in museums, but also just the museum curious or the museum lover out there. So invite you to check that out. It's terrific, Laura. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been just wonderful. I, I maybe have one recommendation for when folks ask you what your favorite museum is. The uh, the safe play might be to say uh, your favorite museum is the one that you're at that day. So <laughs> perhaps you try that. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show. I like that. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It was really a pleasure to chat with you today. Wonderful. And as always, thank you to our listeners. We know many of you oversee portfolios for your nonprofit organizations. Just a reminder, there is an endowment and foundation section on our website with many useful pieces. You can access it all at fiducian.com. We'll put that and other pieces that Laura mentioned and references in the show notes. And to all you good stewards, thank you for investing time to help your nonprofits prosper. We'll connect with you soon on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Investment Stewards podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified of new episodes and visit fiduciantadvisors.com for more information. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of fiducian advisors. Content is made available for informational and educational purposes only and does not represent a specific recommendation. Always seek the advice of qualified professionals familiar with your unique circumstances.